Hello and welcome back to Horror from the High Desert. I am your host, Scotty Milder, and this week my guest is Tom Eberhardt. So Tom has had a long career in the movie industry, both at the independent level and at the Hollywood studio level. Uh, he's worked across genres uh, as a comedy filmmaker. You'd know him from his screenplay for the movie Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. Also from his films Without a Clue and, of course, the Kurt Russell film Captain Ron. But horror fans would know him from the cult 1984 film Soul Survivor and, of course, the classic 1980s teen horror comedy Night of the Comet. I first met Tom back around 2007. We kind of lost touch for a few years, but we recently reconnected and uh, he graciously agreed to come on this podcast and we had a good, fun, wide-ranging conversation and I really hope you guys enjoy it. And of course, I want to remind everyone to check out the YouTube show Nighttime Logic which is, of course, hosted by friend of the pod, Daniel Brom. Daniel's the author of The Night Marchers and Other Strange Tales and the novel The Serpent Shadow. You'll remember, of course, that I had Daniel on uh, Horror from the High Desert last summer. Nighttime Logic focuses on the strange, weird, and wonderful side of dark fiction through readings and discussions with diverse authors from around the world. His next episode welcomes Dan Franklin, who's the author of the newly released novel These Things Linger from Cemetery Dance Publications. That episode is going to be on February 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can tune in on Daniel's YouTube channel, which is Daniel Brom 7838 And of course, I'll provide a link in this episode's show notes. And as always, if you're enjoying the show, please go to whatever streaming platform you're using. Leave five stars, leave a review, tell your friends, go to social media, spread the word. And here we go with director Tom Eberhardt. Before we kind of dive into your history, just a little bit of a history of how you and I know each other. So I was trying to kind of trying to remember the details. Uh, I think it was back around uh, 2007, you had seen, you and your wife had seen one of my short films. I was trying to remember which one it was. Sweetie. Was it Sweetie? Okay. So uh, it was a short film I had done for the 48 hour film project. And it was, uh, I like to call it my dead girl in the freezer movie. And you guys had seen, I think you were judging another film festival that they had. Oh, there you are. Yeah. Um, you guys had been judging another film festival and they had screened it there. And I remember the guy who was running the film festival, uh, a guy named Greb Gravener, was like, uh, Oh, yeah, we got uh, Tom Eberhardt. You know, uh, he's the guy who did Night of the Comet. He saw your movie and liked it. And I just, my head just exploded because uh, <laughs> I grew up with that movie. <laughs> Well, he was like, yeah, he wants to meet you. So I was like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Pass on my information. Well, I, I have a um, recurring vision of my last minutes on Earth. And <laughs> laying on my deathbed and I'm kind of surrounded by my family. And other people are in the room who came for the free lunch, I guess. And from just as the lights are going dim, I hear somebody from the back say, Wait a minute, he did Night of the Comet? Yeah. <laughs> I've got to imagine. <laughs> yeah, that was uh that was one of those movies that um I think was kind of a seminal experience for me, but I do want to get to you actually have two or three films that were very formative for me uh growing mm-hmm. up. So I want I want to kind of get to those as we go, but I do want to just say I really appreciated how you, you know, you live in Santa Fe, you and your wife live in Santa Fe, and, you know, I was young right out of, you know, a year or two out of graduate school at the time, 
uh, did this little over a weekend short film <laughs> and to have you, you know, kind of reach out and uh, want to, you know, kind of take me under your wing. That really meant a lot to me at the time. So um, I really appreciated that. I don't know how much under my wing was of value, but <laughs> I, I liked your stuff from the very beginning because, uh, and I don't mean this in a bad way, you weren't overachieving in those short mm. movies. You had the concept, you stuck with it, you executed it, and it all relied on how cool the concept was. What was the one where the, where the young lady was sitting at her computer and talking to somebody as the right. world was in? Uh, send. (laughs) That's funny because I have another podcast called The Weirdest Thing and my co-host for that, uh, Amelia, she is the star of that film, uh, Send. Oh. That that movie, Send, is how she ended up, we ended up becoming best friends. And uh, (laughs) so we actually started another podcast, which is the two of us basically uh, recreating that movie talking uh, over a webcam uh every other week (laughs) so but um yeah no that was uh a pretty big deal and then you invited me and uh i'm trying to remember which friend of mine but another friend came up and saw you did a screening of your film naked fear which i have to say i just rewatched this morning got up early this morning and rewatched it in preparation for this interview and i do want to talk about that film i really enjoy that film well sure I'm not uh, embarrassed by it. It was like we, the genesis of that film was that after the unexpected by me as much as anybody else, surprise of Night of the Comet when it came out, uh, then I started off of that, I started working in, in the studio system, primarily for Disney, but some for Paramount and then later on for Showtime. But as the universe of theatrical film changed, which it did, yeah. I mean, it's radically since COVID, but it was changing before that. Uh, studios went to what they call tentpole movies. And so they throw a lot of money into like maybe four or five big movies in a year. And if one of them hits, it right. gives enough money to support the studio for 18 months or 24 months or something. So that was their new strategy, which meant that the kind of movies I made and several others did too. Disney were, well, I don't want to say program movies because they were a little bit above that, but they were movies that were made to go out and earn a buck. Yeah. You know, that's what they were. And it includes such titles as uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Honey, I Blew Up the Baby, which I wrote. And, right. and uh, <laughs> things like that. But slowly they were phasing all of those for them, quote, low budget, which meant like under $9 million. Right. Low budget movies and uh, work was just drying up. I had never established myself as having done a big blockbuster. I mean, United the Comet was great for what it was, but part of its legend was that it was so cheap to make. Mm-hmm. So, when, so when the company that made it ended up on it ended up grossing, oh gosh, I've heard various numbers, but it ended up grossing like right at seven, eight, nine million dollars for a movie that they invested 700,000 in. Right. It was a big deal for them. But anyway, the um, the work for lower budget, like I said, for the studios, that was like six, seven, eight million dollars, uh, started to dry up. And I was, found myself sort of dressed up with no place to go because I hadn't produced a big budget movie that had been a hit. When that happens, it puts you higher up on the ski slope. 
Yeah. So when you go into that coast mode, which everybody does, you start the coast mode way higher up on the mountain and you've got a long way to coast. And so we started looking around for something to do. And I had sold a script. Well, not sold it. 20th had uh, optioned it. And uh, I had written it to be a low-budget movie. Uh, Not as low as what we made it for, but pretty low. This is Make It Fear. Make It Fear. You know, a million, million and a half. And um, I got the script back. Got it back in uh, turnaround from 20th Century Fox. And uh, we set out trying to make it. My wife and I just said, well, nothing's happening here in L.A. because it sure wasn't. So uh, um, other than going out, to lunch with other writers and directors who weren't working. <laughs> and we came here. I had a friend who had produced a movie for me back in 98, maybe. And uh, he was a resident here, and uh, an expatriate from Hollywood. And I was talking to him on the phone. He said, well, come out here and make it. And so we came out and we were just, and, but this was quite a while ago. This would have been 2005. Yeah. We came out here to Santa Fe and we were just knocked out by it because this was before everybody started talking movies in New Mexico and everybody was going to write a movie and direct a movie. Everybody knew somebody whose house had been used in a movie. Yeah. Like before all of that kind of stuff started happening. So the people who are really, uh, people were really cooperative. I mean, outside the, the small production company we had, and were gosh helpful. One of my favorite stories is that we it was it was basically based on an incident that happened in Alaska, and um, right, it's that it was that serial killer in Alaska who was basically taking people out of the woods and hunting them. Yeah, I can't remember yeah. his name. It's just a, yeah, it's just a it's just a uh, send up of most dangerous game. Right, and uh, so. There was all this kind of goofy stuff that was happening, and it wasn't goofy in a bad way. It was goofy in an interesting kind of funny way and advantageous to the production. But the one guy at that time who had picture cars was in Albuquerque, and I had Joe Montana here in the movie, and he was playing a county sheriff. Right. So I, you know, I last movie I made before that was in Southern California. So I didn't think anything of it. Just pick up the phone and call a guy with the picture cars and get one over here. Yeah. Well, he had just made a whole bunch of money off the Cohen brothers and he had locked up his shop and gone fishing or something. <laughs> <laughs> so but there were no cars. And I was, you know, I was so pissed off and annoyed. And and, um, and I was telling people, I was ranting in the office. I said, you know, Joe is supposed to be a county sheriff. So what's he going to be doing? Walking a foot beat? Come on, <laughs> you know, and we had a young man who came up to me in the office, and this happened a lot for different things, came up and said, well, my next door neighbor is a sheriff, and he brings his car home every night. Yep. I, I told him, I said, look, we can't just go around asking cops if we can borrow their car. <laughs> well, well, fortunately, he didn't listen to me because the next day, yeah. a a patrol car and a four-wheel, four-by-four, pulled up in the parking lot and have basically picked one. Yes. <laughs> okay. And the, and the costume uh, department, because we, we made that movie for about $500,000, 
the costume department had um, the low-budget sheriff's outfit, which are usually khakis and right. a khaki shirt from Sears. And so Joe had the khakis, khaki pants, khaki shirt, and the rubber gun on his hip. But badges, they had a one on him. I don't know what it said, but something like Tinker, Tinker Town Police or something like that yeah. on it. <laughs> I was saying, look, well, I have to shoot close-ups of this guy. We're going to see that badge. And they were saying... Well, what can we do? Well, the cops that were out there with the car, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I won't mention their names, <laughs> said, well, here, take this. Yeah, which is which you're, which is, you're really not supposed to do. Yeah. So Joe had the sheriff's badge on, driving the sheriff's car down the street, and right. all kinds of weird stuff like that happened. And we just kind of became enchanted with the whole thing. Yeah, that that was an era. I don't know that you can do that out here now. We have post-Breaking Bad oh. and everything. Oh. People have gotten pretty jaded out yeah. here. But there was an era shooting in New Mexico where you could really do that kind of thing, yeah. where like the cops would show up and let you use their cars and they yeah. block traffic for you just as a favor, yeah. you know. Yeah. Like. There was a lot of that going on. In fact, I told my wife during production, I told her, no, I'm having these dreams at night of people I haven't seen or talked about in years that I knew back in college. And I don't know why they're suddenly popping into my head. She said, because you're out here doing a student film. That's why. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, you know, my, my feature film, which we shot in two thousand. 12 2013 you know we raised the money on kickstarter it was about a thirty thousand dollar budget if we had tried to shoot that in la it would have been a half million dollar oh. or more you know but we were able to stretch the dollar here so much further because it was new mexico and plus you have to be smart about yeah. uh about the subject and naked fear was smart in that most of it took place out in the wilds right. so what we're dealing with was scenery and pretty nice scenery that yeah didn't have a theatrical representative. You know, we would just right. shoot. Yeah, you go out and yeah. be a land or something. And yeah, and uh, we, shot on, we, we lost the location at the last minute. Val Kilmer stepped in and said, well, come here, you can shoot on my ranch. And uh, we did, and it worked out terrific. I was going to ask where exactly that was. So that was the Kilmer. That was up in the Pecos. All right. It was yeah. beautiful landscape, very yeah. striking and very stark. So we had this uh, great backdrop, that, uh, great backdrop, and it you know provided us with a bunch of production value, which was essentially for free. Yeah, that's pr that's pretty amazing. It's so we're working a little bit backwards, but that's okay. So that so that film was 2007. You know, like I said, I we watched it at the time because this was when you and I were getting to know each other. I came up. I think you had screened it. Probably the Jean Cocteau, which is now owned by George R. R. Martin, but it wasn't at the time. <laughs> As a different um, side of town. Yeah, I think and I think that's when we first met. And I remember being impressed with it at the time and then rewatching it this morning. It's what I like about that film is it's you know, it's a dark film. It like you said, it's based it's got a very the most dangerous game kind of yeah. feel to it it's based on the serial killer or inspired by the serial killer in alaska who was taking people out into the wilds and hunting them down and killing them it's got a very you know it's a horror movie but it's also got a real rural noir kind of rural noir. Yeah, yeah feel to it 
it almost reminds me of like a Jim Thompson novel or something. Yeah. Like real yeah, gritty, real. It's got like, you know, an exploitation setup without ever feeling exploitative, which I liked. You know, yeah. it, it takes the situation seriously and it doesn't feel like it's uh, playing it off as being prurient. Well, it's been around here as a grindhouse movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. because of the volume of nudity in it, there was probably, if you put it all together, probably about 10 minutes of total nudity. Right. That, because that's what the guy was doing in Alaska. He would take these strippers, sex workers, whatever, fly them in his plane out to the wilderness and take away everything from them, including their clothes, and give them right. a head. That's what he would do. Yeah. So the movie had been shot a couple of times, but nobody could go that far and then it was shot as frozen ground i think with Nick. yes Kendrick. yeah uh john kuzak I saw that movie but yeah. i doubt that they had as much nudity in it as we had and then the title naked fear in those days there were still blockbusters around so right <laughs> so naked fear starting with an n for nancy an n was right in the middle of the cassettes that's that's smart. <laughs> yeah. And guys could go in and rent it without going behind the curtain to the X-rated movie. Section. Yeah, but even yeah. then, you know, yeah, she, there's a lot of nudity. But you know, one thing, the way you treat the nudity in that film with the camera is, it's you know, you're not crawling up and down her body with the camera. Yeah. It's very like matter of fact, yeah. you know, and I think that keeps it from feeling. There's, I don't want to say it's like documentary style, but but there's a there's a a coolness to how it's presented that kind of keeps it from ever feeling gross, you know. Yeah, I don't think it we takes, like I said, it. it takes it seriously. We did mostly. We shot uh, Danielle Dan, Danielle Galuka, who was the lead on it. We shot her mostly in wide shots or in cowboy shots, which are basically from cowboy shot comes from. Western movies were right. guns. So yeah. it was wider than a waist shot because you give enough air. So if it was a cowboy, you could see his gun. Right. And then in, in uh, close ups. So we didn't really, because it wasn't our intent to do a sexploitation movie. So we didn't really take advantage of uh, Danielle that way. We, we put her into a lot of shots that were basically, sounds weird to say it, were. Um, was were beauty shots, you know, just yeah. her running through the river trying to get away from the guy, and we just suck in all this scenery around her. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't I spit on your grave? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Never. That's why I say like it's got a, a more rather than feel real like exploitation grindhouse. It feels more rural noir to me or yeah. Jim Thompson. You know, we put a lot of people into the industry off that movie because we made yeah. a deal the IA here trying to hold our budget down and we went and talked to the guy who was head of the IA at the time here and we said look we want this to be an IA picture we don't have the budget pay everybody we want and we're not going to have the budget to hire people who are already in the union right the deal that we struck with him was that we would we would be an IA picture he we would pay the department heads IA scale yeah you know, was hair and makeup and continuity and all of those kinds of things. But we would keep track of the hours that the other people who weren't being paid worked on the film. And we had the deal with them. All those people that we hired, they were interviewed 
and we said, look, here's the deal. Yeah. You do a good job. You're not going to be a gopher and be running out for coffee for everybody. You're right. going to be working, pulling cables, doing all that kind of stuff, you know, lugging sandbags. And we said, you do your job, you do it competently. And at the end of the day, you'll be jumped into the union. And yeah. we, gosh, I think about, somebody counted up once, maybe about 15 people or so on that crew got into the union through Naked Fear. Yeah. Well, I, I do know, watching the credits, there were several names I recognized. And I knew your your cinematographer, John Grace, I knew him pretty well. Yeah. Um, that was, uh, but yeah, that was, uh, it was nice going, because I don't think I'd seen it since I'd seen the screening. So it was nice going back and rewatching it. But like I said, we're kind of starting, jumping ahead there. So I want to kind of go back. <laughs> um, so just talk a little bit about kind of where you're from and how you got started in the industry. And you know what, what drew you to movies and what drew you to kind of wanting to work in movies? Well, I'd always wanted to, well, not always, but since I was like maybe a, a junior in high school or something, I always wanted to do that, but never had the nerve to say it out loud. Uh, people say, well, what do you want to do? Like my dad was on me a lot about, you're spending all this time here. What's it going to get you? Right. What are you going to do with this, this experience? He was talking about putting on plays. I said, well, you know, I, you, know you learn how to talk better and you know, stuff. And uh, my mom was an assembly line worker. My dad was a second generation plumber. I was supposed to be the third generation plumber. Uh, but I just couldn't see it. My dad, bless his heart, tried and tried, taking out every <laughs> summer, tried to make a plumber out of me, but I was just the boss's son who leaned on the shovel, you know, just a <laughs> And so when people, because I go, I go to classes, sometimes talk about, mainly about screenwriting, but I go to classes and always the question is, how did you get started? And I have to tell them it's like mythological. I don't know, because yeah. all I know is the only effort I put into it was always leaning on the door, you know, in case it might open sometime. I got uh -huh. started when I was in Southern California. My wife and I both grew up in Southern California. And I was driving along the 405 freeway at rush hour, which is a stupid time to be on the 405. And it was just <laughs> bumper to bumper traffic and creeping along. And for some reason, I, I just happened to look to the right. And I saw at this community college, I saw that they were doing new construction and there were these giant doors being put in. And I knew what they were. They were scene doctors. Uh, so yeah. um, I started asking around, where are they building over there? Somebody said, oh, they're, they're uh, now a PBS affiliate, and they're going to start doing stuff like that. And I said, oh, yeah? So I picked up the phone, just cold call, the, uh, and I got a hold of the guy who was the production manager, and there were only two people working there. There was the president and the production manager, and that's all. I hadn't hired anybody else. Oh, no, they had a couple of other people hired. So I came in and talked to this guy, and he was in a bind. And yeah. I said, the problem and he said oh well my uh, cinematographer slash editor has got to go away for two weeks to the army reserves and we got to get this film first film that we did we got to get it cut and out of here and i said well i'm an editor <laughs> so i ended up working with him probably 18 hours a day trying to figure this they're trying to get this thing done and um so that locked me into that so I stayed there working inside public television for about, stayed there too long because it was very comfortable. 
Yeah. Worked for about 10 years and did a variety of stuff, did a bunch of documentaries. And I learned uh, not so much directing because I knew how to do that, I, but uh, writing, you know, uh -huh. because I was being given such crappy stuff to direct that I just backed into writing too. And working with deadlines and things like that. And finally, after 10 years, I was really looking to get out because my life was slipping away. So I had a coincidence meeting with a guy who had been in drama with me in college. And he was now a drama teacher. And uh, he had a student who he thought was just aces. And her husband owned a furniture manufacturing company. <laughs> and he mm -hmm. wanted to finance a movie that would star her. So I said, okay. So I immediately dumped my job at uh, public broadcasting and said, let's get started. I didn't have a script or anything, but <laughs> sit down and start writing it. And we shot that. My DP on that one was Russ Carpenter, a very good friend. Russ has gone on to win at least one Academy Award for Titanic. And I don't mm -hmm. know if now he may have won another couple. But at the time, we were like guerrilla filmmakers. <laughs> so we shot this thing. But it was a real Ed Wood adventure. I just, it was like uh, there was a lot of lying involved to get into locations. And, you know, people around that area remembered me from public television. So I would go over to the local hospital and say, I need to shoot a helicopter evacuation. A medevac. And they said, oh, what's it for? Oh, it's for this little thing I'm doing over at... Uh, um, and so, oh, yeah, sure, sure. Well, when do you want to do that? <laughs> you so know, I got this... stuff just by lying. And there was... Oh, is this for a sole survivor? Yeah. Yeah. And I hadn't watched it for years and years and years because I wasn't very happy when it uh, when it got finished. Uh, so it, it was... Sole Survivor was this Ed Wood adventure. We were just... We had a very short crew. Crew, quote, unquote, consisted of maybe five people. And we were going out to shoot this thing. I was basically using the knowledge that I had from shooting stuff for right. PBS. And some of that involved, like, after-school specials and like that. And we got it done. But the thing that was overlaying the whole thing is it wasn't about the movie. Uh -huh. It was about the wife of the furniture manufacturer. <laughs> <laughs> Good God. I... I tried to explain to her, I, I went in and uh, she was slowing up the movie. And bless her heart, I mean, she was trying, but she was slowing up the movie. So I went in on a Saturday and cut down a lot of her scenes and took out some just to speed up the movie. Because the movie really wasn't about her. Uh, she was a peripheral character. And is, is she, I, I don't know if you want to confirm or deny which character, does she play the psychic? Or? Uh, she played the... Um, woman who had been a movie or television star or something but right was right yeah yeah anyway, okay yeah exactly my assistant direct my assistant cutter ratted me out to the, that whole contingent and that while i was out of town they encouraged me to go out of town it was our anniversary and while i was out of town they came in and watched my assistant editor screen the movie for them uh -huh. of course they flipped out because what they consider to be a lot of her meaty scenes were either cut right. back, God. cut out. And when I came back, I was without a job. Uh. <laughs> and my assistant editor, wherever he is, uh, had taken over cutting. He was now the editor and he was going to do this, that, and the other thing. And somehow I spent like uh, maybe 90 minutes, two hours, 
basically crawling around on my knees in their office begging to get the movie back. Uh. So I got it back with a lot of conditions and then all of her stuff went back in. And then I never saw it in a theater. I paid one time. My assistant and I paid money at a local movie theater to, to screen it so we could just sit there and watch it because I'd never seen it on a big screen. And then that was it. And I didn't see it for 40 years. And then I accidentally stumbled across a copy of it. Yeah. So, and I looked at it and yes, it was terrible, but I don't know how much of that terribleness was related to my personal feeling about that film well can i tell you my thoughts on it because i because i've seen it actually a few times and i have to admit that i did not realize until very recently in fact in preparation for this interview that that was your movie yeah i knew that movie yeah. And I knew, of course, that you had done Night of the Comet and some of your other films. And I knew you had a movie before Night of the Comet, yeah. and I didn't ever put it together. And then I, when <laughs> I was getting ready to watch, I was like, wait, that's Tom's first movie? <laughs> you, know what, you know what I'll do? I will uh, put a copy of uh, a movie I did called Face Down. I did a series of movies over at Showtime, and Face Down was, as most that is what I want to see. Yeah. That was my getting involved with film noir. I just wanted, I just had the urge to do film noir. Yeah, that's, I've read, I haven't been able to see that one, but that yeah, is what it's I'd been like lost. To see. I had a lost movie. You know, it was like uh, Flaming Youth. You know, there was nothing left of it. Right. And uh, finally, I just stumbled across it, a bootleg copy, but pretty good copy. And so I've got it. I'll send it to you. The, oh, uh, I'd love to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, so finally putting it together, I'd actually seen Soul Survivor a couple times over the years. And again, like I said, I did not put it together. That was your film. Yeah. And so I, again, I rewatched that recently, like just a couple weeks ago. I actually really liked that film. I, I can see the flaws that you're talking about. And you can tell it's a first film. You can see the budget issues. Yeah. It's interesting you're talking about the, you know, lying to get into locations and stuff. I can definitely see the guerrilla filmmaking, you know, and the filmmaker and sure. me can see the the ways you're you're kind of piecing things together and you know. Yeah. But it is a spook like from just an outside perspective, it's a spooky film. And and it's it's actually effective in the movie that it reminds me of which is one of my all-time favorite films, I actually teach it in my classes, is uh, Carnival of Souls. Yeah, yeah. And I think and I think it works very much on a similar wavelength. I think it's very clearly, if I'm going to be generous, I'm going to say it very clearly influenced the Final Destination films. If I was going to be not generous, I would say they ripped it off. <laughs> um, but, well, I, I don't know. There's been... That format's been used quite a bit. There, the thing about those kinds of films, Scott, is that low-budget films and why, like Soul Survivor, a lot of people like it. Which is, I was reading, I was reading online reviews. It's got its fan, like it's it's actually it's it's a kind of a cult film. Like it's yeah. it's definitely well, got its it's it healed over time. It healed itself over time. Yeah. I think because we got terrible reviews when it was released, and Russ Carpenter and I particularly got slammed over it. And uh, so I said, okay. But anyway, the uh, night of the comic came out of that because I said after I got loose from that film, I said, okay, I'm going to sit down and write something. Oh, 
Before that, I was going to tell you what makes Soul Survivor work. Same thing with Carnival of Souls, same thing with all those like Night of the Living Dead, all of those kinds of things. What makes them work to a, to a certain extent, maybe to a great extent, is they're underpopulated. Yeah. The screen is underpopulated and it's kind of dreamy in that sense. Yeah, dream, yeah, absolutely. You don't dream with all the extras in your dream. Right. <laughs> what you're doing and who you're talking to or who you're running away from, and there's not extras in your right. dream. Right, right. That's a really, out. that's that's interesting. That's a good way to put it, yeah. Yeah, and so I think it's what it makes spooky, which leads us to empty cities. Right, I, right. <laughs> I had, uh, after I finished Soul Survivor, I said, okay, next one around. And I didn't even know if it was going to be a next one around because Soul Survivor at the time didn't make a dent in anything. <laughs> so I said, to, I'm going to write a movie that I like. Now, yeah. I had I had my habit screwed on right because I knew I had to write a drive-in movie. That's what it was going to be. And there was no sense in trying to do Spartacus, you know, because nobody right. was going to give me the gazillion dollars. I was going to get a very tiny budget. Although we made the movie with even a tinier budget than I thought we were going to make it with. But anyway, I sat down and I wrote Night of the Comet as sort of a homage to spooky movies, scary movies I'd seen when I was a kid. And there was tons of them around. It was in that golden age of drive-in movie, low-budget drive-in movie, rubber suit monsters and like that. Yeah. So there was a movie that scared the bejesus out of me. when I, was, I probably saw it when I was about maybe nine years old or so. It, I think the date on it was 1954. And we saw it, and it was being uh, in second release at that time as a summer movie for kids my local theater, and I went to see it, and it scared the bejesus out of me because because of the opening scene, the first 10 minutes of the movie, and the movie is called Target Earth. Now, oh, there's I've heard two, of it. Yeah, I've not there's seen two it. movies carrying that, that title, Target Earth, but the one that I watched that impressed me so much was the one with Richard Ginning in it, and I think it was 1954. Okay. Uh, yeah, and anyway, it was about a young woman who wakes up one morning and slowly comes to realize there's nobody else around, and she's the only person left. And it was shot in downtown L.A., much the way we did Night of the Comet. I think they probably shot it early in the morning, just looking at the, not bad weather, but the overcast that they were shooting in. Uh, and it was shot by a guy with, I'm sure, until they got on the soundstage and sort of wrecked the movie with a lot of dab. Uh, but the before they got on the soundstage, I'm pretty sure they probably shot it with an IMO, which was okay. a clockwork camera, wind-up camera from World War II. And uh, I think they probably shot it with that. The guy who directed it was also a pilot, uh, just a personal pilot, threw himself around. And um, he was also a film editor. So he knew what he was doing. And he knew yeah. how, that's exactly the way I came, although I wasn't a pilot anywhere. That's exactly the way I came into Night of the Comet. I expected nothing out of Night of the Comet after I finished writing it because I didn't have an agent, never had an agent. Uh -huh. And somehow this is kind of emblematic of my whole career. I written this script without any idea what I was going to do with it. My assistant at the time, I went back as a freelancer working for uh, public television, shooting some stuff or a educational place in Indiana. And the script was laying around, my assistant read it, and she really liked it. Okay, fine, I'm glad you did. 
Do you think it was fun? She said, oh, yeah, I thought it was fun. It was kind of scary in places. I said, great, great, great. Now, she was dating an emergency room doctor. And doctors and dentists at that period were always opening up their wallet to produce uh, fly-by-night movies. Uh. So she gave it to him. He didn't really have any interest in movies, but he was attending a Joseph Campbell cinema uh. <laughs> with a young lady named Jane Kagan. And Jane was Jane and her partner were involved in financing. In fact, they financed, um, or at least a big part of it, uh, Crush Groove and a lot of those things from the 70s. So he was looking to get in close to her. So he said, oh, okay. yeah, I just read the script. I thought it was really great. She said, well, I'd like to read it. I said, oh, sure, here, gave it to her. Then I get a call from Jane Kagan, who I didn't know from Adam. Yeah. She called me up and said, Tom, I read your script. I said, huh? How did you get it? <laughs> and yeah. she said, and, you know, it wasn't copyrighted. It wasn't protected at all. Right. And I said, okay, fine. I, I think, you know, good. And she said, well, my partner and I have an agreement where we both have to be really passionate about a project before we try to move it forward. Right. And I said, my partner hasn't read it. So she said, let me give him a, give him a chance to read it over the weekend. And I said, sure, sure. I just thought it was never going to come to anything. And yeah. sure enough. She called back Monday or Tuesday and said, Tom, she said, I got to tell you, my partner just didn't take to it. But I don't think it has anything to do with your screenplay. I think it just has to do with him and his personal tastes and things. Right. So I do wish you luck on it. So the partner, whose name I forget, was over at Atlantic Release trying to sell them a Saturday morning cartoon series. <laughs> and at that time, Atlantic had just made a bushel basket of money off Valley Girl. And they were looking for another Valley Girl of some kind. Oh. And uh, so he came in and he's trying to pitch him this cartoon show. And the guy who ran Atlantic at the time said, look, we don't need cartoons. We need another Valley Girl. And he <laughs> just read the script. So he put, drove back to his office and pulled it out of the trash can. Tested <laughs> it off and went back to uh, the guy who was uh, running Atlantic named Tom Cole. Tom read it, didn't get it. Yeah. Just didn't get it. Then he had an assistant, Catherine Galan was her name. And Catherine Galan and Jane Kagan were my Reg and Sammy off of this whole project. Catherine Galan went in and said to him, and I guess she had a position where she could say this to him, you're being a dummy. Read this again <laughs> carefully, because this is a hit movie. And I, I didn't know anything of this is going on. Yeah. Then I got a call back from Tom Coleman, and he said to me, he said, listen, Tom, we really like this script, but what we want to do is we want to give you uh, right now $50,000 in cash for the script. And I went, uh, I don't really like writing, so I really actually wrote it for me to direct. So they wanted to just buy it off of you. Yeah. And like and so, have someone else direct it, basically. So I, uh, I passed on it. And a uh, week went by, two weeks went by, phone rang again in the office and said, Tom? I said, yeah. This is Tom Coleman. He said, yeah. And this is the way the conversation started. All right, asshole. <laughs> $50,000 for the script and for you to direct. And oh, they had okay. plans, uh, at least my producers did, they had plans I didn't know about at the time, had plans to dump me out of the, after the first week of dailies. Because the second Atlantic sees this first week of dailies, they're going to know what a mistake they made in hiring this guy. Now, I just oh, okay. blissfully went on doing what I was doing, thinking that, 
you know, I was, I had landed in a sweet spot. I didn't know that I was hanging by an, a uh, twig. Right. Uh, but then, lo and behold, Atlantic said, we're liking what we see. So Wayne and Andy, my producers, were a little disappointed. But we <laughs> went on and, and got through it. And a lot of Night of the Comet came from me. Oh, for, for low-budget filmmakers, one of the stories about Night of the Comet before it landed in Atlantic, was Jane Kagan had set me up with a meeting over at Orion, like a real studio people had heard of. Right. And I went in to meet with Orion, and they loved the script. But the guy I was meeting with, whose God, name escapes me at this moment, he, um, he said, we like this script a lot, but Tom, you've got to understand this is a drive-in movie. And I said, hey, yeah. that's why I wrote it. <laughs> he said, well, we sent it over to physical production and had them budget it. And the budget was $11 million to produce Night of the Comet from really? Iran. And I, I said to them, I said, no, I can do it. You know, let me tell you how I'm going to do it. I don't need that kind of money. I was hoping maybe I'd get 1.5 or something. Right. Let me show you how we're doing. LA, and here's how we're going to shoot it. And I put the camera here, and I put the camera there, and I won't see any people, and blah, 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 blah. And then he got a call from his assistant in the outer office, and he said, Oh, excuse me, Tom, there's a phone call I have to take, but we can discuss this further, okay? Okay. I left and then clicked. There was no phone call. <laughs> this is yeah. she had to get me out of he she had to get him out of this. So the thing is, we ended up producing Night of the Comet for half just about of thought what I thought I could produce it on. So. And it turned out to be relatively easy because it was it was being done for a drive-in audience. You know? Yeah. So, so that's one thing I wanted to ask. So watching it again, my question as far as keeping the budget down was it does look like the one thing I couldn't figure out is how you were able to get to really sell the empty city idea. Because there are shots of like multiple lanes of freeway yeah. that look like you had to have blocked traffic. Well, they, they were all student filmmaker tricks, is what I come out with. I, yeah. Now, and I had LA sits in a bowl. Right. Uh, and it's, you know, that gave people trying to live in Los Angeles a big headache at the turn of the last century because mud would go all over the place because the bowl would just start to fill up. Right. Because it was in a bowl, you could go up to some place, like one of the big open shots was shot up by the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, which sits up on the rim of that bowl. Okay, yeah. What we did was we could take the camera low, shoot straight across at Kathy and the Mercedes that was parked there with nobody in it, shoot straight across from her, get oh. up at the street, and then, and then by the time the camera was seeing, the, the angle of the camera was wide enough to see more uh, in the background. By that time, it was above the street traffic. Oh. So, and it was just a question of positioning the camera all the time. And, That's really smart. I totally... And then erasing the soundtrack, just erasing the soundtrack. So the yeah. dubbing we did was of Kathy and Kelly because we took away the soundtrack, which is shooting in L.A. is always very noisy. Right, of course. Like that. And it's just, uh, there is one shot, and I'll send you out to look at the movie several times. I never tell anybody where it is, but you can see window washers on, <laughs> on the side <laughs> of one of the mid-rise buildings. Because oh, we were okay. shooting up above <clears throat> the Los Angeles Library, 
And again, that's up on the rim. So Kathy and Kelly are having kind of a sister argument, and we were shooting across from them and seeing these big buildings going Oh, up. yeah. Okay. Another scene. Uh, and so that gave us the feel of the city. But we got back, I noticed that there were a couple of window washers hanging off one of those buildings. They're uh -huh. not of focus, but if you know what you're looking for, you can see them. I mean, I've certainly, I've seen the movie a bunch of times. I've never noticed that. I know the, I know the exact scene you're talking about. Yeah. So. Okay, yeah, that like I said, that was, uh, like, watching it again, I was really struck by how spooky those shots of just the empty streets yeah. uh, really are. Well, that's what drew me. That drew me to that uh, format was that memory of seeing Target Earth when I was a kid. First right. ten minutes of that was just this lady alone, figuring out step by step that she was completely alone in Los Angeles. Yeah. And after that, the movie was set. Like I said, it was probably eight or nine or something. Set in my head so that they broke it up with going back to the military and the scientists that were going to come in and drive in any second and fix things. But right. I would literally, and I was too old to be doing this, I would literally close my eyes when they went back to the empty city. And huh. I, just, I just never, I never forgot that. In fact, a couple of shots we had of the empty city were copies of shots from Target Earth. Anyway, that was a particular time, 1954, where there were empty city theme movies coming out in 54. There was Target Earth, which was low budget. There was World, Flesh, and the Devil with Harry Belafonte and Inger Stevens. Huh. And uh, there was a Harry Belafonte production. And that was a social commentary movie where, you know, Harry Belafonte was left alone in New York. The streets were empty. You know, those were great shots that they had. Streets were empty and it was just him by himself. And then he just kind of learned to get along by himself. Right. And then Inger Stevens shows up and she's like a little snow bunny. She's as white as she can be. So oh. it all became a thing of these two people getting together and trying to overcome systemic racism. Interesting. There certainly was at that time. And then the kicker in the third act was... Um, I forget the actor's name, but another white guy washed up on shore. And suddenly the whole thing erupted again. There was like uh, you know, was a snow bunny. And here was this white guy suddenly who was viable to her. And here was uh, Harry Belafonte, who ain't got no body at that point. They ended up, the two guys ended up hunting each other around the streets. And at the end of the movie, I just think it's novel because at the end of the movie, they finally chill out and they say, this is it, the three of us. And the last shot is the three of them walking away hand in hand like this menage a trois that huh. <laughs> was going to go to... Uh, wow, that to had to be away. pretty radical for the time. Yeah. <laughs> now, anyway, there was that social commentary. Pilot an episode of The Twilight Zone, Where Is Everybody? Was I, like, yeah, I remember that. City. Yeah. It's kind of an empty back lot. And then Arch Ogler had one out very early, 53, 54, called Five, which okay. referred to five people left after the atomic apocalypse. Okay. And, and then there was a, a nice section in the middle of uh, On the Beach where they go into San Diego and they're looking around. Right. Nobody there. Right. So it was kind of a theme that was happening in the, in the uh, mid-50s. And certainly when I was going to see these movies, it's kind of done a, it's kind of been uh, reared its head again with um, things like uh, A Quiet Place. Yeah. I just saw one on streaming the other day that was uh, 
empty city movie, but now I've forgotten what the name of it is. But anyway, these these things seem to go in cycles. So I just remember how much I was impressed by not by the story of uh, of Target Earth, because after ten minutes, then it just turns into this big gab fest, and they have the worst <laughs> robot known to mankind was stumbling <laughs> the kind of robot where when when uh, actresses are running from it and screaming they always have to break the heel of their shoes so they fall down right <laughs> this thing a chance to get to catch them but just the opening just the opening and that wasn't about story that was about backdrop and motif yeah and like and i said so let's just do valley girl against the end of the world yeah see what we come up with and fortunately, I had two actresses, Kathy Stewart and Paula Maroney, two actresses who never questioned what I was doing. My producers questioned me every day. <laughs> was like the shootout in the shopping mall. They said, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're coming down and they're yelling at me in the middle of when we're shooting. And they said, these girls should be scared. They should be frightened. You know, I said, haven't you read the script? Jeez. <laughs> I, well, I love the conceit that, you know, they're Valley girls, but they have this dad that, yeah. you know, he's, you know, he just happens to be a Green Beret that used to, and I kind of used, that's funny, I didn't realize, I think you inspired me in my screenwriting classes, because when I'm teaching character development, and I'm always trying to teach students, like, get away from cliche, yeah. and get away from, like, what you expect. And I always use this example of, like, imagine... You have, uh, take a stereotypical 16-year-old girl in Beverly Hills. Yeah. And what if she's being carjacked? You know, how is she going to react? Yeah. You know, and I say, well, let's throw a wrinkle into it. Because it's always about developing backstory. It says, what if her dad is, like, in the military? And there's taught her like self-defense training and stuff and they're like okay well that changes <laughs> and i realized again go back and watching uh because it's been a while since i've seen that in the comment i was like i totally stole that from tom because <laughs> i yeah. always use that i always use that in my screenwriting class who was it that directed buffy the vampire slayer uh joss whedon yeah now, he gave, he publicly gave out of the comet credit for being the inspiration for Buffy. Yeah, he said that the uh, Kelly Baroni character, or is it Samantha? Yeah. yeah was an yeah. inspiration a, for Buffy. I had a, I was mentioning to you about my one venture into film noir. Kelly Maroney was in that one. She had a lead in that one. Oh, really? <clears throat> yeah, just as Kelly always does, just threw herself into the part yeah. so much to calm her down a few times. But she, um, Kelly's a force in and of herself, and so is Kathy, but they're like two, they're coming from opposite polar <laughs> ends <laughs> of the court. You know, Kelly is just, you know, let me in, coach, I'm ready to go. Yeah. Kathy is more uh, practical-minded. Okay. You know, she's more apt to ask, why do I suddenly have a gun? Where did this come from? Yeah. <laughs> you know, ask those kinds of questions on the set. Yeah. <laughs> We had to, uh, being a low-budget movie, of course, we shot on sound stages at Raleigh Studios in, in Hollywood for about three days. And in those days, uh, what a low-budget company would do is if you made a deal, they needed three days on those sound stages where we built the so-called underground facility and all that kind of stuff. But what they would do is they would uh, make a deal to shoot three days and have a day to build and a day to tear down, get out. Yeah. But if you're a low budget movie, you shot on those days too. <laughs> right. Right. You didn't stop just because of that's what the contract said. 
he yeah. kept shooting. And so, of course, I didn't get, I had just had to walk away. The, the plug was pulled. And I, the last scene I was shooting was with Kathy in there. And she was sort of slinking around trying to figure out what the all these guys in these gray jumpsuits were doing. And they were literally tearing down the set around her and making a lot of noise. So he said, okay, Kathy, we're not doing all that dialogue that was in here where you're talking to yourself. It was no good anyway. So just as well, we're not doing it. You're just discovery. Right. And so she would be sneaking around all of this laboratory junk that John Muda, the production uh, designer, had pulled in from hither, thither, and yon. So we had smoking test tubes and, and yeah. you know, oscilloscopes and all kinds of stuff. And uh, so I said, okay, Kathy, got to get this. So I'll just talk you through it, okay? I told her generally what was going to happen. And she said, fine. Arthur Albert, who is the DP, wanted to, had to really smoke the set up big or otherwise you'd see torn down sets. In the oh, back. interesting. So we smoked it up. And I said, okay, we're rolling, we're rolling. I said, come on, Kathy. And she's got her flashlight. And she's looking around with her flashlight. And then DP would say, Kathy, put the light in your eyes. And so she, for some unknown reason, turned the flashlight into her face and then turn it back down. And I said, okay, Kathy, you're coming up on it. You're coming up on it. Then you see it. And she says, what? <laughs> you, can see, you can see her lips sort of move at that point. What? <laughs> I said, it doesn't matter, but it's scary. And she just well, something, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was just all of that crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. But I'll tell you, I love low budget. I, I think I told you this once before. I'll be channel surfing on the TV and occasionally I'll stumble across a movie that I made, made for Disney or Paramount or somebody. And I'll stop and look at it. You know, I don't hate those movies. So I'll stop and look at it for a second and, you know, and uh -huh. like then move on. But if I stumble across a low budget movie like Guy the Comet or Night Before uh -huh. or even uh, Naked Fear, I'll stop and watch. Because those are like home movies to me. I mean, they are because there's a crew always forms a sort of inner family relationship while you're shooting. But with low budget movies, it's uh, it's really a big deal because yeah. people in the sound department will have an idea of right. how to handle things when I'm sitting there scratching my head, you know. And the DP is telling me, no, we can't do it that way, Tom, the way you plan to do it for two days. We can't do it that way. And then people will come up. It's like the kid who came up to me with the idea of getting his neighbor's sheriff's car. Right. You know, I remember the day that that happened. It's just like looking through a, a photo album. Right. It well, is, besides the big money working for studios, it's the thing that I really miss about everything. I'm, and to a certain extent, I'm sorry I ever got it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's how I, when I look back at, uh, like, doing Dead Billy or doing my short films, it's the same thing. It's, there's a real, and I never had the the big budget experience that you did, you know, but, like. Well, media there's the, Yeah, <laughs> but there's the uh, in-the-moment problem solving, you yeah. know, that feeling of, you know, you're flying kind of by the seat of your pants, and it's yeah. everything sort of right on the verge of falling apart in any given moment yeah. and yet it doesn't it's like constantly things are you know you feel like everything's always almost a crisis and yet you're always pulling it off yeah and there's an exhilaration to that and, and it is that feeling of everyone pulling together yeah you know? yeah you can't do it by yourself everybody has to have an oar in the water right 
And you can't just throw money at the problem. Yeah, even if they don't get, uh, well, like Kelly Maroney, Kelly Maroney and and, uh, Face Down played uh, this young lady who was schizophrenic and going off of her medication. Uh, So she has this scene with J.K. Simmons in his car uh, where he's driven her home. He gets shot and killed right in front of her. And it sets her up. Well, we were trapped with low budget. We had to shoot in a parking lot of an apartment building because that was the only place we could shoot around four other places. They all had to be grouped together so we could go from one to the next to the next in the same day. So we're here in this parking lot and it was a zero. It was just nothing. It was a parking lot. And then when we arrived on set, started to set up, it started to snow. And I said, okay, now we're starting to look at something. What can we do with the snow? What can we do, you know? get in touch with our inner Sweden or something. Right. Then what I had Kelly do, I said, Kelly, let's try something. Kelly had a a double that was there. And I said, let's get the double suited up and get her hair done so she matches Kelly. Okay, well, what are you going to do, Tom? What are you going to do? It's low budget. They're always like, you know, afraid you're going to run away and kill the butt. (laughs) But when I said, okay, she just seen this horrific thing. So let's get inside her head. And so I said, what? Well, she's like a little caged bird in this car after this guy has been shot. And she's crying and trying to get out of the car. And she can't get the handle to work. And like that, I said, okay. So the double steps up right there in the driver's passenger side door and looks in at her. And it's her. Right. (laughs) She's looking at herself, but a much calmer self than she is at that moment. And I said, okay. And then finally, the altar self opens the door and lets her out. And she runs away. And I had a Showtime executive on the set with me. And he said, no, isn't Kelly supposed to be in the car? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's in the car. Well, why is she being blocked outside the car, too? I said, because she's also outside the car. <laughs> and the nice thing about low budget is you get into those moments. Right. And you don't get a call from the studio. Yeah. It's the first thing that happens because studio productions, they always have, I don't know what they call it now. We always used to call them a corporate spy. Who I didn't mind all that much, but they were always on set. And if right. things started to go sideways, they'd be on their brick cell phone yeah. in yeah. the studio. And the next thing you know, the studio would call the actor's agent. read, And then the actor's agent would call the actor saying, shape up, quit arguing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I've... I it was part of why I decided to really start focusing back on the fiction writing yeah. and get a, sort of out of the film stuff is hearing more and more of those kind of stories and realizing like I don't want to deal with that you know I had friends who were starting to get to that level and were telling me those kind of stories and, well when we were doing when I was doing Captain Ron Puerto Rico for Disney yeah. We were talking about this, not to be name dropping, but I was talking with Kurt Russell. We were sitting around wait, endlessly waiting for rigging to happen. And we were talking and uh, I told him that I, you know, I really preferred working with budget. He didn't get it. And I uh, said, well, here's the deal, really. I said, I've got nothing against studio pictures. And I certainly have nothing against the outrageous amount of money they pay. Right. But, um I said, if we're down here in Puerto Rico doing Captain Ron, and I wake up in the morning and walk across the street to get a cappuccino or something before my driver picks me up, and I get run over by a truck, Disney would probably take the rest of the week off out of memory of me because I was killed by this truck. And also to hire a new director. 
And that director would be in there by the end of the week, or certainly the first of the next week, and he'd be off and running. And where I left off and the new director came on would be pretty seamless. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to, it wouldn't jump out at you. Whereas if they had actually managed to kick me off night of the comet and hired the director they have waiting in the wings to replace me, <laughs> right. he'd, take, he'd taken over, you would have noticed the jump. Oh, because yeah. they, couldn't reshoot, they couldn't go back and reshoot the stuff that I'd shot. So they would have to continue on. But that Night of the Comet was such a nitwit film that <laughs> the first mistake everybody makes, because there's been all kinds of attempts to remake Night of the Comet, is they try to bring logic <laughs> into it. Yeah. And it's not going to work. Night of the Comet defies logic. Well, the thing about Night of the Comic that I have always loved about that film, going back to when I was a little kid, is that it is so totally weird. Because um, <laughs> it's funny, but it is actually an incredibly dark film. Like, there are moments of, I mean, the guys in the shopping mall that they get into the shootout with, the stock boys, are actually, you know, they're funny. And then when you realize, oh, it's they're actually turning into zombies, they're actually really scary. Um, because you see, like, Oh, it's, their brains are rotting. That's why they're acting so psychotic. And then when you actually figure out what's going on with the scientists and how just amoral it is, what's going on out in the desert, yeah. it's actually, it's it's very dark. It's, it's, really, it's really pretty grim. But then you end on such an up note at the yeah. end of it with uh with a dmk you know like now that's a good, uh, samantha finally gets her boyfriend at the end yeah, I mean, that's, so a good, that's a yeah. good example of dmk of how low budget works yeah i i of course written the script and the original script had kelly's character dying in that scene and where she gets ejected by mary warnock then yeah. she just passes away she goes to sleep and then it was just kathy from that point forward really pissed off that her sister had been killed right which and, which would have worked narratively. Which Wayne and Andy, or Wayne Crawford and Andy Lane, had never liked. Yeah. And actually, they take credit for having me change and uh, keeping Kelly alive. But actually, my wife had been on me about that for three or four weeks prior. Uh-huh. And so I threw, threw in the towel. And I said, okay. Uh, she gets ejected, but it's not really to kill her. It's just kind of to sedate her so she doesn't give herself away and she looks dead and blah, blah, blah. Move on. And I couldn't rewrite the script structurally. I just couldn't do anything to it. We were very close to getting into production. Yeah. And I had another guy. But the thing is, once I've had Kelly live, what was going to happen? I couldn't write another guy to the script. There just wasn't a place for another guy. And the tension between the two sisters meant a lot to me in that script. So it presented me with a conundrum. I said, okay, Kelly lives. We got that far. I'll have her live for some time. Then an assistant producer or something, I forget what he was, he came in and he had been on me with several other people on the crew and said, who is this DMK? Uh-huh. Who is he? And I said, he's nobody. He's just a thing on the video game that drives me <laughs> nuts. That's all he's supposed to be. It's just yeah. her character not to accept being beaten at anything. And people come up to me and I said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Forget it. <laughs> Then, so I had this kid appear out of nowhere. Yeah. That was okay. He appeared out of nowhere, and that was a little bit of a charming scene with Kelly. And then I had the art department. I said, make me up a license plate for DMK. 
And they did. Yeah. I shoved it into the license plate holder of that Mercedes SL or whatever he was driving. And then we just took a shot of it driving away with DMK at the end. And I have to say that was the biggest reaction of any reaction in that movie. And it all came about from me getting bullied into a lot of stuff. Right. <laughs> no, but I, I've had that happen every so often where I feel like my story knows before I do what it's trying to tell me. Yeah. In, in fact, Sweetie, the movie that you saw, the short film, uh, where you reached out to me is one of those where it is the same thing where the reaction at the end I didn't have her voice at the end where when he climbs into the freezer and he says who loves you sweetie and then you finally hear her voice my first pass at the script I didn't have that I think we added that in post yeah. but I had it in the script where when he goes to kiss at the beginning he kisses her on the lips and he says who loves you sweetie and then when I added at the end you know who loves you sweetie do you hear her ghostly voice you do Yeah, it was like it was like some part of me knew to put that into the script at the beginning so that I could pay it off at the end because when we screened that in the theater I just remember the gasp when you hear her voice yeah. and it was like if I hadn't set that up you would not get that payoff at the end and if, you know, you just somehow, some part of you knew to set up DMK at the beginning screenwriting, so that you could get that payoff at the end, you know? Screenwriting is a very strange um, process. It may not be for everybody, but people I know who, who do it or have done it, it's more true with them. Yeah. That it's a constant process of discovery. Yeah. And I talk about screenwriting to classes Ron, they said, look, here's what you got to do. You, you've got these mile markers, end of first act, beginning of second act, end of second act, and third act. And that's the that's the um, diagram for, for your script. So you're following that. So you've got up to like 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30 pages for the first act. And you've got to know how the where the movie's going to go, and you've got to know where right. it ends. But other than that, don't worry about it so much. Get the characters on screen for that first act and just play with them. Give them, you know, if, if one of them's supposed to be a, a working retail at, at Bullock's Wilshire, you know, and then you decide, you know, that's a little cornball and it's been done so much. So let's have her do something else and let's have her be sassy instead of being such a milk toast. And just play with all that stuff and see how it goes together and get those characters to where you like them. Right. That was the problem with Soul Survivor. I never liked those characters. Interesting. I like the young lady that had the lead. We cast. I cast her. I like her, Anita Skinner. I liked her, but the rest of the people I didn't care much for, and personally, and I didn't care much for them as characters in the script. So I was always the script was always sort of at arm's length with. Me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's always hard. Yeah, and then I. Well, I I told you I just wrote this script, first one I've written in about six years. Yeah. And I sent it to you. I did that with that script. I toyed around with the characters in the first act until I finally had them and I finally had an acting ensemble that I needed to carry out for the rest of the script, I thought. And it was fairly easy to write the rest of the script because I liked the people. I liked putting them through their paces. Right. You know, having weird things happen to them. And it's... it's another script like Night of the Comet in that it's completely, there's no attempt to explain things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just happened. 
And uh, what's the title? The title, current title is, we're going back and forth about titles. Current titles is Love in the Time of Robots and something else. One other thing. Oh, Apocalypse. Love in the Time of Robots and Apocalypse. All right. That's the title. And uh, that's what it's all about. It's a, a nice. mid-30s, 30-something young lady that can't keep a boyfriend because she's so outspoken about things. <laughs> finally falls for a robot. Oh, okay. Cyborg, actually. And he falls for her. And um, that has been played out in other movies, but it's usually played out the other way. It's usually played out where the robot is this sexy android right. girl robot that's really sexy and is available to a guy. And the guy is wondering, you know, can she really have sex and like that? And you're right. So I just flipped it around and this girl wondering about the robot. But anyway, it's one of these movies that I would have been promising it to my agent for a while, hadn't even gotten started. And then and the reason why was I didn't know about the characters. I mean, I generally knew who they were going to be, but I wasn't right. familiar with them. And yeah. so I wrote the first act, got familiar with them. And once I was familiar with them, I came to the first act curtain and then went on from there. I hate writing, actually. You seem to love it. <laughs> yeah. It. But I, I got to a point with screenwriting where I was really struggling with the screenwriting uh, as a format. I want to get back to it, but I, I developed a real block with, with trying to write for movies. Yeah. And I don't know if it was because I was letting too much of the production considerations get in the way or started thinking about budget too much or, you know, you, you put too much of the cart before the horse. It was just getting in the way of the, um, the creative to, to me. Sure. And it, it, it happens to me just that way. I write low budget. When I sit down to write, yeah. I automatically write low budget. I find it, first of all, I don't like, like writing action scenes. I don't, to me, they're just procedural, and they have to be in the script at a certain place. And you know, right. the guy's here, and he's going to go come through these other guys over here, and you know, somewhere he's going to get out of it okay because it's only about fifty-nine minutes into the movie, so he's going to get out of it okay. Right. And it's just a lot of writing for stuff, especially now that I'm not directing. It's um, you're writing a bunch of stuff that is going to be changed anyway. Yeah. Because nobody ever reads it. Anybody who reads a script reads the dialogue, and that's it. They don't read yeah. it, so you have to learn to read It's the Johnny Depp rule. I work with John <laughs> on an ill-fated movie, and John came up to me, and I hadn't written the original script, but I had substantially overhauled it. John came up and said, well, for this scene, I'm going to be wearing dark glasses. I want to wear dark glasses. I said, well, John, there's a problem with that. He said, no, can't you see? It'll look really cool. I'll get these uh -huh. big glasses. I said, but this scene happens in an alley at night. <laughs> He's wearing dark glasses. And he said, an alley at night? I said, John, it's right there in the script. <laughs> he said, oh, I don't read that shit. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that doesn't really surprise me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's generally true of everybody. Scripts are always skim. Yeah. Well, and I... I always, that's one thing I tell my students all the time is it's like, you have to write your scripts, understanding that people are trying to finish them in about a half an hour, you know? Yeah. yeah. There's those, those roadblocks. The first 10 pages have to 
Right. one way or another to make you want to go on after that because readers and that includes underling executives at studios or networks and right. also readers that are hired on the outside to read these scripts and then comment on them right they have permission to put the script down after 10 pages after you yeah. don't see it in the first 10 pages which is easier for me because i always write high concept but for yeah. somebody who wants to write the pianist or something like that, it's a little bit of a do. Yeah. They have to make a big leap about the people who are reading it, that they are readers of classic fiction like that. Right, well, right. Well, what I found when I worked at Lionsgate, I decided that, you know, because I worked in acquisitions right out of grad school, uh, just as an intern for uh, a few months, basically as a script reader and as an assistant at Lionsgate. And I decided that the 10 page rule is way too generous. And the, it really, you have about half a page to hook somebody because if I got half a page into something and I was bored or not hooked or the formatting was bad or I'm catching a bunch of typos, like I was immediately things were going to the bottom of the pile you yeah. know so yeah it's it's really it's it's brutal on that level i do want to so um there are a couple other uh, you know i don't want to keep you too much longer i appreciate you being generous with your time i do have a couple other things i wanted to talk to you about if you're willing yeah. uh they're not horror movies but a couple other movies i just want to touch on you mentioned one which is captain ron but another one that was a big deal and i wanted to re-watch it and unfortunately i did not have time but it was a big deal movie to me when I was a kid, and I just wanted to get you to talk about it a little bit. It's a comedy. Was the movie without a clue? Oh, without a clue! I wore that VHS out when I was a kid, <laughs> and I just wanted to know, like, what it was like, both doing the Sherlock Holmes movie and also working with two of the great British actors of all time. Yeah. Um, oh, was... What was how? How did that come together? How did you get involved? And just what was that experience like? Well, I was coming off of a picture that actually didn't get a chance to live. I mean, it's available and around, and thank God. It's like I said about uh, my movies, they generally tend to heal themselves with critics as time goes on. Yeah. It was the I did with Keanu Reeves when he used to be a kid uh-huh. called Night Before. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I haven't seen little, it, but I was reading about it. That yeah. little movie got just beat up. We got it finished, and it all hung together, and it was what it was. It was a drive-in movie, and a quirky drive-in movie. And uh, for some reason or another, I had a maniac producer that I didn't know he was a maniac at the time. And he went in and he insisted that he was going to recut the movie because it's a flashback movie. And I didn't know this at the time, but flashback format is a cold format. It's uh -huh. hard for the audience to get into the swing of flashbacks. Right. But anyway, for better or for worse, it was a flashback movie. So we wanted to turn it into a linear movie, and they went out and hired another director. And then I went away to do without a clue, came back, and then they asked me to come back and restore the movie to the way I originally had it. Uh -huh. But another thing about comedy, not to get sidetracked too much, is it's delicate in that we sat in the cutting room when we were cutting that movie just laughing our heads off about stuff. It was really pretty funny. And when we went back in to reassemble it, uh -huh. just never hit the mark. It yeah. just did. And we couldn't figure out. You know, my maniac producer had destroyed the continuity sheets and he had destroyed the backup cassette that I had made. Of, uh... like, he destroyed that. So we didn't have anything 
uh, concrete to go back to. We were just going back to it by memory, and we thought we could do it, but somehow we we just missed it. And uh, oh, but anyway, uh, I was coming off without a clue, or not without a clue, with uh, night before, and uh, I thought my short-lived career was over because the movie didn't get a release. It was an independent production, didn't get a release, and it finally got uh, screened on HBO because HBO is a producing partner in it, and then it you know just went away, and yeah. I thought I was a dead duck. Yeah. But I had this good friend uh, working for a company called ITC. He was a producer at Disney and left Disney. He went to ITC. And he told me he had a script for a Sherlock Holmes comedy that they wanted to make, but he thought it really needed help. I'm sure the original writers wouldn't say that. <laughs> but he, thought it, he thought it really needed help. And he asked me if I would take a look at it. I did. And then ITC went along with hiring me to do it. They were in Burbank. They weren't in England. Right. And so we went to work on the script and started to shape it up. We went into casting. We got Michael Caine right off the bat. And then we got uh, Ben Kingsley. Uh, and Jeffrey Jones came along. And then, uh, oh gosh, what's his first name? Friedman's his last name. Uh, he played the villain, Dr. Moriarty. Um, but he, I went I over to it. England not knowing what to expect and got over there. And I really enjoyed the experience. It was great. Michael and Ben were two actors that were coming at things from the exact opposite direction. Okay. Michael had done enough movies that he was pretty mechanical with things. He just, I'd be, I'd be saying, he'd be listening to me and picking lint balls off his sweater <laughs> while, I was, while I was telling him, while I was trying to explain, explain something that I thought he might think was stupid, but it actually had a of reason to be in the script. And so I'm talking and he's picking lint balls and he says, so what's that mean? I pause here? Uh, <laughs> and yeah. I said, yeah, that's it. Pause right there. Yeah. Then on the other hand, he would come in with the script and we'd be talking about it. And he said, well, I'm really connected with this because I say this here, I say this line here on page 15. And then I say the exact same line, I say it again up on page 74. So I'm trying to make that connection. And I say, hey, wait a minute. You see a line? Give me that script. <laughs> I just crossed it out. It doesn't belong there. And yeah. um, the thing that I liked about British actors, I generally am, have a hard time with adult actors. And it's all on my side. It's not on them. I just... You know, I'm a plumber's son, and what am I doing here with these movie stars? I don't get it. Right. A bad case of imposter syndrome. Uh -huh. But they were so easy to work with, and they approached acting as a vocation, a job first. And yeah. then they elevate the job, rather yeah. than coming in as an artist and trying to do stuff that proves they're an artist. Uh, and, yeah. Um, Michael, Michael Bimwich had not a bit of trouble with either one of them. And I was not particularly in favor of Ben playing Dr. Watson because Ben is so obviously Indian. But uh, I went along with it, and now I can hardly imagine anybody else in that role because he played it so well. And, of course, Michael was great, and all the supporting cast was really great. And we just had a good time. The thing that was the worst thing about shooting there was the weather. We started oh, yeah. shooting two weeks before Christmas and then shot another eight weeks after Christmas. And it was just right in the teeth of winter. And, boy, was it cold. <laughs>
you know, we had to do that thing, like, because the actor would be having all this frosty breath coming out while they were doing lines. So we had to do the tricks of having them put ice cubes in their mouth and chew a bunch of ice, spit right. the ice <laughs> lines. Right, and, right, right. Uh, and all of that stuff. But everybody who saw that thought that I was British because huh. I, I got a lot of interviews off Night of the Comet, but a lot of people didn't know me. When I came in, they were sure that I was British, that it was like some carry-on nurse thing uh, right. doing it, because it had a lot of that kind of humor in it. Right. And uh, fortunately, I had two uh, two lead actors on my hands that gave me no trouble about pratfalls and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the movie came out, I was quite proud of it, because rather than like a carry-on movie... And by the way, my DP at the time, Alan Hume, had shot several of those carry-on movies. Uh, and, right. And, and we were used to laugh about them. And the thing is that the movie was set against a realistic backdrop. It actually did have a fairly good mystery plot if you wanted to track it that way. Uh -huh. But uh, we just laid all that comedy on top of a deadpan backdrop. Right. Nice, this is kind of what I remember about it. Yeah. Victorian English backdrop, and uh, it all worked. It it did it did very very well in Canada. It did very very well in pretty much all British speaking territories outside the U.S. It was sort of in the in the U.S. Uh, nobody hated it particularly, but uh, it just didn't take off like it did other places. In fact. Yeah. What happened to it was I did because I never know what I have off these movies when they I know I like them but so what you know <laughs> who am yeah. I I can't go to the movies enough to make them profitable so I finished finished without a clue it was out in theaters and I had seen it with an audience who seemed to like it in fact it got me in at Disney uh, Jeff Katzenberg went to see it over in uh, Brentwood in L.A. at the Bruin Theater. And uh, the next day I knew, I next thing I knew, I was going over to Disney to direct this movie I'd never heard of in my life. But the thing that happened, I think the second week in release, I'm laying in their bed, watching the news, watching the TV, drifting off, just about asleep. And Jay Leno was on. And Jay Leno used to do this segment when he was doing the late night shows. He used to do this signal, segment called Jaywalking, where he would... Right leave the NBC building, go out on the street and think of something to do. Yeah. Well, he went out of the NBC building at uh, 30 Rock and crossed across the street. And there's a guild that there's a movie theater called the Guild something, 54th or something. He went into the lobby with his microphone and the guy following with the camera. Uh -huh. and he said, so what are you showing here right now? And he said, Oh, you know, it's this uh, Sherlock Holmes movie. And how's it going? Oh, there's like only three people in there. It's a bomb. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Just as I was going to sleep. Oh, and, no. Oh, man. But without a clue, it's not one of these movies that's healed itself. Well, what's funny about, because I actually, as you're talking about these movies healing themselves, I'm thinking about my relationship with both Without a Clue and... Night of the Comet, I'm thinking about how did I discover these films? <laughs> and I'm realizing, and I've told this, I've talked about this before with some other movies. You know, my my dad's best, or one of my dad's best friends had, you know, my parents didn't have cable when I was a kid. And, they, and my parents never, they weren't like big, like go to the movie people. Yeah. So we didn't go to the movies that often. 
But my dad had this friend who had one of those big satellite dishes, like 80 satellite dishes oh, in his yeah. backyard. You know, the ones that took up the entire backyard, you know. And he didn't get HBO, but he got like the movie channel, I think, which was one of the like, it was like, they didn't get the movies that HBO got, but yeah. they got like the next tier movies or what you know a lot of i I don't remember what brand yeah so it was it was a lot of like independent so he would record movies for me but it was always a lot of the movies that i was watching when i was a kid were like just a little bit off what a lot of the other kids were watching yeah because it was like not what hbo had it was like just a little bit different you know (laughs) so like i remember i loved without a clue but like no one else saw it at the time and I loved uh, Night of the Comet because I think that was one of the ones he recorded for me. But I was like the only person I knew who knew that movie when I was a kid. But well, what's funny is that I talk to people now and it's like there's these whole communities of people who we all discovered these little movies that were coming together and we're realizing, oh, we all love these movies, you know? Because I I was getting online and I saw this like run of reviews of people talking about Without a Clue and how much people love that movie. I wish I'd seen this movie. I saw people talking about Soul Survivor and how much people love that movie. <laughs> and and so it's like you said, these are movies that like you might have felt like I could imagine you're seeing Jay Little say, "Oh, this movie's a bomb," but like meanwhile, on our own, we're all discovering these things. <laughs> And, and, you know, X amount of time later, it's like all kind of comes together. So, and like, I think I told you, you know, I've gone to these horror conventions and film festivals over the years. And whenever Night of the Comet comes up, people are like, oh, I fucking love that movie. You know, like <laughs> that, that is one of those movies that, you know, it's like reanimator. People always talk about that movie. Who would have thought I, you know, my email lights up every time Night of the Comet is mentioned anywhere. All my friends in LA and like that. And the most recent one was, I think it was Facebook. And I don't know what platform they recommended or, you know, recognized movies on. But Facebook, I think it was Facebook, named it as the best genre movie of the 80s. Yeah. And I, 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 I went on to see if I could find it. A friend who emailed me about it, he didn't get any particulars. So I went to see if I could find it because MGM is working on a sequel right now. To, well, not a sequel, but a remake, a sequel, a TV series. They haven't decided yet what they want to do. But I went to look this up and I just typed, you know, Night of the Comet reviews or something like that. And I was just stunned to see all of these blogs come up yeah people and most of them were just people speed talking through the uh, plot yeah but other one was sitting down and talking about it like it was a like it was a genuine real movie worth talking about yeah. <laughs> it oh it's no it's it's beloved i mean it's actually a beloved film you know like when i when i was just at StokerCon this last year or no it wasn't StokerCon. i think it was was it StokerCon or was it spooky empire one of the one of the horror festivals I was just at, I saw, I think, like four or five different Night of the Comet t-shirts. You oh, know, yeah? people walking around wearing Night of the Comet t-shirts. And I just know it's a movie. And I mentioned to people like, oh, yeah, I know Tom Everhart. And people's like eyes get real big, you know. And it's just <laughs> like, you know, there's certain movies from the 80s. You know, obviously, everyone talks about the John Carpenter films and everyone talks about, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street or whatever. But, you know, you mentioned a movie like uh, Reanimator, 
and everyone's like, oh, we love Reanimator. You mentioned Night of the Comet. People love Night of the Comet. There's just these movies that are iconic from that era that that are definitely still beloved. And, you know, like I think I told you, with Night of the Comet, you know, the one thing everyone always brings up whenever I mention Night of the Comet is the red sky. Oh, yeah. There's these iconic the, images from that movie, the red sky. The cheapest thing to do in the movie. Yeah. Robert used red filters. He used quarter red right <laughs> camera and all of that dust blowing through which was so what we call sourcey because you could see the source it was like they had a little thing that they cranked and it blew in this brick right. dust and yeah. boy I thought but we it works <laughs> shooting on that stuff but you yeah. know wayne and andy got it for free so yeah you know, go ahead and use it but yeah the red sky i think that um what happened well when, when we finished the movie and uh, uh, I never went to a preview of the movie. Uh, Atlantic would sneak out to preview it and wouldn't tell, certainly didn't tell me they were going to preview it because they weren't interested in my opinion at that point. Plus, I didn't want to change the movie anyway. But at the, the, the company that was, was in charge of PR for that movie, uh, they were back in New York. And a nice lady, uh, executive with the company, called me up to talk with me about it. I think for preparing me for the worst because she said, Tom, we love this movie. We really do. Everyone here in the office loves it, but I think we're in a little bit of trouble with the audience. And I thought, oh, you know, shit, why? <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it turned out she wasn't even referring to an audience. She was actually referring to herself because she was about 35 or so. And she was looking to promote movies that she knew how to promote. And Night of the Comet, they never got a handle on how to promote it because at the time, it was a mixed genre movie. It was yeah. is it comedy, is it horror, is it sci-fi, a little of each, and a little of each is the worst of all. Mixed genre movies at the time were poison. Yeah. And I never knew that. I never gave it a second thought. But then I saw the um, a week before it opened in theaters, they bought time the Twilight Zone was in syndication and it was running at like where I was in Southern California. It was running at like about 6.30 in the evening. And um, then the Love Boat was still on. Uh -huh. And so they bought time in Twilight Zone and they bought time in the Love Boat. Yeah. And they cut the trailer with clips and everything, but they changed the narration. On the Twilight Zone, the one that went in the Twilight Zone was this like deep voice guy. And he's saying, what would you do? Where would you go? <laughs> and then the Love Boat version, same visuals, but it started off with Night of the Comet. <laughs> there, you know? And I would go into like Blockbuster someplace and they never knew where to put it. They would put yeah. it in sci-fi, they put it in comedy. They just never knew. Yeah. And if I had known then what I knew, what I came to learn later, I would have never approached that script. In fact, the one that I just wrote is that way exactly. Yeah. I didn't want to write anymore, but you know, I was being bullied into it. <laughs> I said, well, I'm just going to take the either common approach. I'm just going to write something that I think is fun, a comedy robot against the end, a comedy romance with a robot. Yeah. It's the end of the world. And uh, let it go with that. And whether or not, and I've always been fatalistic about this stuff. 
my agent, uh, worries about it a lot. Now, always has worried about it, but he's a very quirky guy. So he, and he's mixed up with all kinds of comic book people. Uh. So he generally has a taste for this stuff. But he also has to consider the market and where he can sell something. But I finished it, and I would say to my agent, I say, you know, let's don't screw around with it. Because, look, here's the fact. If it gets read by somebody that wants to make it, they'll get involved. They'll make it. Right. If, it, they don't, they're, if they're not interested, there's nothing we can do to change the script to make them interested. In yeah. And possibly say, we're interested in it. Then they're going to kind of, depending on the production company, will give you a lot of notes on the script or it will be a deluge of notes on yeah. the script that you have to address. But by that time, you're being paid to address them. So it's, so it's a little less painful. The movie that I wrote, that I actually wrote the script quite a while ago, and it uh, got picked up here last year, and it just came out of production maybe about a month ago. They're waiting on special effects. It's a creature feature. I'd never done a creature feature before. So back in the day, I decided to write one. Back then, nobody was interested, but now suddenly everybody was. Right. Go figure. And anyway, the company I was working with, production company, they were really deferential to me as a writer. And they they would give me a note and they would say, look, Tom, this is in the DNA right here. It's in the DNA of what you've written. Don't go off in left field trying to accommodate us by writing something weird that doesn't belong in <laughs> Very seldom do you hear that from a production company who's got the money to get involved in a picture. Right. And uh, they were just a, a treat to work with. And uh, we sailed through it. This thing, it was shot by a, not a first-time director, a second-time uh, director. And uh, so it was going to be his second movie. Anyway, they're just waiting on the special effects to be finished now. I don't know what it's, I don't know how it's going to be released. It might show up in theaters for a week or two, or it might go straight to streaming. I don't know. So, yeah, so I wanted to kind of close out and ask you about it, because you've been to that. So, uh, what... Uh, does it have a, a finished title, or is that still kind of up at the end? Well, it's still, it was originally called Mental, but then there was a couple of movies that came out at the same time that had that moniker. So I changed it to Menace. Menace, okay. But the key character is a character, it's sort of like what I did with Kelly Maroney in Face Down. The lead character has uh, schizophrenia, and she senses that something has happened. Something's happening around her, but nobody will listen to her because they think she's crazy. And uh, that's the whole—that's the whole setup. It's got a little dash of invasion of the body snatchers in it, and like that. But basically, what it's about is big bugs that look like—I don't know—I don't know what they look like now. I envision them sort of like crabs, a big crab thing. Uh-huh. And uh, it's a pretty good plot. And did you see the miniseries 1883? No, I didn't. Oh, that was sort of the follow-up to Yellowstone. Right, Uh, right. The young lady that was in that, she was actually the star of the movie, although she was billed behind weightier actors like, oh, I don't know. Anyway, people had been around acting, and they're like the stars of the movie, but it was really her, she was the star of it. And she sort of grabbed onto the script. I don't know how she did it, but she got a hold of the script and pursued with vigor, the part, to play it. She just wanted to play that part. Oh, cool. Well, actresses generally like playing crazy people anyway. Yeah. (laughs) And especially people who are schizophrenic, so they'll appear normal, but they really are crazy. (laughs) 
But anyway, I don't know. It should be. It should rear its ugly head sometime around. Sometime I think maybe in the summer. Okay. Well, so again, I don't know if we'll be in theaters. The theaters aren't quite the thing they used to be. Uh, sadly, uh, yeah. so some a movie can make a lot of money just by going straight into streaming. And, and I mean, the amount of money that gets dumped into those movies that go straight into streaming is sinful. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And frankly, I don't get it. You know, what was the series Stranger Thing? Right. They're saying that they were paying, it was either a second or third season or something, a very popular show. And they were spending like into the billions. Yeah, I don't know. I don't understand. I'm very confused by Netflix's business model. Like the amount of money they're spending. I I don't know how they bring in. (laughs) Well, also... This is getting a little off topic, but also it's a different time than when I was doing movies, studio movies, because, and I liked it. I like working in a corral because I think it's like compressed oxygen. You work in, if you just could do anything you want, go anywhere, it's just going to not amount to a lot lot most times. But if you take something and you compress it, like you're fighting all the time over the budget and you're, how can I do this? How can I? It actually can spawn a lot of creativity. Yeah. Uh, but I'm seeing these movies now. There's a lot of actors and actresses who have their own production companies who get involved one way or the other. And um, and directors that have clout, they have their own production companies and like that. And it's like there isn't a grown-up in charge. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's yeah. why you get things that are, what did I see? Oh, the the most recent Batman movie a while back by now it was about a year ago or something yeah and i came out of the theater after sitting there you know sitting through it i came out of the theater and i was looking at this line to get into the women's restroom and this <laughs> young lady came out she's probably 14 or 15 and her friends were still in line she said my god was that the longest movie ever <laughs> and i thought right on that you should review movies. but <laughs> There's just this extreme bloat in movies nowadays. Every movie has, you know, if you can get away with two endings, you're doing well. Usually there's three or four endings. Now, the script I just wrote has, admittedly, three endings. But (laughs) I'm sure one of them, at least, will be cut out. But when I was doing movies, we would sit there, and the ideal time length for a movie was between an hour and 30 minutes and an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. So I did this movie called Gross Anatomy for Disney. Right. Doctors. Matthew Modine, right? Yeah, Matthew Modine. Yeah. And uh, I did a movie and I had Christine Lottie was in it. Christine and I had some creative differences. I did I didn't write the script. I rewrote it, not rewrote it completely, but I fixed it. Yeah. Before we went out to shoot it. And I Christine Lottie, who's a very serious actress, was on me a lot. And at that time it was the first studio movie I ever made. And I didn't know how far my influence over things would go. Yeah. You know, I know by contract. I I got one cut of the movie, director's right. cut, which right. was usually the first cut after the editor's cut, became the director's cut. And that's all they were obligated to for. Right. You know, am I getting thrown out of this, thrown off this movie? Because I've been liberal with the assembly of the movie because I didn't want to offend anybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg came in at 7.30 one night into a screening, and there was like the usual 10 minutes of happy talk. They came in and just said, well, let's uh, let's take a look at this. And they went to sit down, and they said, by the way, how many reels are we on? <laughs> I didn't answer, but my editor, Bud Smith, did. 
And he said, 14? Their butts didn't touch the chair. They stood right <laughs> back up, left, and said, call us when you're on 12. <laughs> so that, meant, that meant we had to cut two reels out of the movie. It would be about 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but the second they said that, I said, okay, get out the long knives and let's go to work. Right. <laughs> These days, a movie that was, you know, two hours, two hours and 10 minutes, two hours and 15 minutes is nothing. Oh, yeah. You have these movies. Ben-Hur was like three hours long. The original, not the original, but the Charlton Heston Ben-Hur was three hours long. And they gave you an intermission in the middle of it. Right. Oh, it's not unusual to see these movies go out to three hours and beyond. Oh, and yeah. You're going to yeah, see I mean, the un unexpurgated version of Napoleon. That's supposed to be four hours. Yeah, well, Killers of the Flower Moon is three and a half. I haven't watched it yeah. yet. That's it's part of part of why I haven't watched it. Is <laughs> I haven't. I just uh, like where am I going to find the time to sit and watch? Well, it? exactly. And I'm an old guy, you know, and I need to get to the bathroom. And, I need... right. <laughs> and you yeah. know, I have to sort of dig my way out from from uh, through the audiences there, assuming there is an audience there. Right. So you don't see and... big. And back to Naked Fear, that was actually one thing I appreciated because, like I said, I got up early this morning. I, I wanted to watch it last night and I just got busy without, you know, grading stuff for classes and stuff. And I was like, okay, well, I'll just get up in the morning and watch it. And, you know, that movie, I think it was like an hour and 40 some minutes. Yeah. And it just moved, you know, yeah. it like there's no fat on that movie at all. Yeah, it got off to a little bit of a slow start. But, but even then, it was all, and like, it builds. Like, it, it's a slow start relative to the genre, but it, but it's 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 constantly ratcheting up the tension, you know? Yeah. So yeah. It, it's it, it's really, like, there's no fat on that movie at all. Another thing about previewing these New Mexico movies, <laughs> they're, they're a bitch to preview. Because yeah. you preview them here, and because the casting pool is like, two miles wide and an inch deep. <laughs> so the people that wind up in these independent projects shot in New Mexico will like Naked Fear. They're the same people. Everybody knows them. So yeah. you, go out to, you go out to preview the movie and they go, hey, there's JD. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. I mean, it's a hoop. Yeah. yeah. You know, when we came to New Mexico, that's what we were going to do. Christy and I decided because we – have a good time doing Naked Fear. And we said, okay, I know I can push out one of these scripts every, you know, 12 months or so and, uh, and take advantage of what's here. Take advantage of scenery. Don't get carried away with yourself. Plan to keep the budget under a million dollars. And let's just go make some of these. And I actually wrote a script to be done here. And uh, I'm still waiting to do it for about 12 years. Yeah. <laughs> well, because the original plan was to raise money in New Mexico and do movies that were shot in New Mexico within the culture. And that is yeah. it. <laughs> it ends up being harder than you think because it's, yeah. turns out yeah. there's not actually a lot of money here <laughs> to do that so. well there, there is but it's family money and right if, right unless you're in the family you know yeah. but they love to talk they love to talk to you that's the thing yep. you know got excited yep. more than once because we thought okay we're happening now and then it turns out right happening. but you yeah. know that's just the ins and outs of independent production well, I'm excited to see the the movie that's uh, hopefully coming out this summer. So you'll have to let me know when that's looking imminent. Well, I haven't seen it, mind you. I know some people who have seen it tell me it works pretty good. But I told the 
I told the director that I wanted to wait till he had the movie complete the way that he wanted it before I saw it. Yeah, well, that's fair. Well, it was too late to do anything about it because I didn't want him to fret over the fact that I was looking at it. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's and that's generous of you to do to approach it that way. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask a little bit more about Captain Ron, but I think uh, we're we're a couple hours in, so yeah, I think Captain we'll. Ron, we'll leave I always about Captain Ron is it, it was a hoot. Pretty much a page one rewrite on the script. Disney bought basically the concept yeah. they had. And I did. Uh, that's why I never like to hang around the writer's guild offices because I'm always afraid I'll take one in the back. Yeah. <laughs> These writers. But anyway, I had never done anything like it before working on the water. And that slowed us up quite a bit working on the water because, you know, we get the yeah. stupid sailboat in line where sure. Of the DP wanted it, and then a wind would come up and start to push it around. We have to push it back. Right. The time we had a, we were all set to shoot. Everything was ready to go. The sun was in the right place. The water was calm, ready to go. And just about the time we called everybody to get on board, literally in the background, the submarine surface. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> and they had this. I guess they have these little speakers or something. They could talk out at you. And they said, who's in the movie? <laughs> Apparently, they'd been down there watching us while we were, while we were oh, shooting. No. I, didn't think, I didn't think the comic subs were supposed to give away their location. Yeah, no, they tied that. It's just perfect, I guess. I guess I do. Uh, I am curious because I'm, you know, huge John Carpenter fan, and he's uh, associated with the, the Carpenter movies. But what what is Kurt Russell like? Like, what's he like on set? Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell's like a well. I don't know how he is exactly now. It's Captain Ron was quite a while ago, but yeah, when he's doing Captain Ron, he's like a big fraternity brother. Yeah, like there, he enjoyed a laugh. He was. One of these actors that had done a lot, and Captain right. Ron was a comedy, so he didn't feel like he had to get a hold of the intellectual core of the movie. Sure. Because he just took it as a comedy, what it was, and he was in the movie with Marty Short, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they liked each other, and they got along very well. And like I said, shooting on the water requires a lot of patience. And he had him. He had him patience. Only once did he dive off the boat huh. before he went. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what is, uh, I mean, because Martin Short, I mean, he's one of the, just the great yeah. comic actors of all time. Is he... I always wonder what what those guys are like. Are they, you know, famously Mike Myers is actually, and I think Steve Martin is this way too. Is they're they're actually very serious about it. Yeah. You know, they're not silly like in their personal yeah. interaction. Yeah. What is Martin Short like to deal with? Is Marty, he... if you he liked first of all, Marty liked his hands and his legs and his arms and everything. And if you deprived him of that, if you went into a close up, of course, uh -huh. it's close up. He got a little stiff. Interesting. And I asked him why, and he said, "I don't know." I said, "I just, you know, this is the way I work." And I, you know, I said, "You need that mobility where I don't have when you're cut off my arms and stuff." Interesting. But he was a he was a nice guy too. Mary Kay Place was. Uh, oh, that's right. She plays his wife, right? She plays his wife, and the kids in the movie were great. Uh, yeah, it was just a lot of fun. Like I said, the biggest problem was just the physical location. Yeah, I think famously anything on the water is supposed to be the worst. <laughs> by, uh, 
I had my one big, uh, big time director moment on yeah. Captain where we drove all the way out. It took us an hour to get out to where the sailboat was, not where the launch was. So gather up the crew, drive all the way, got out there, and the sky was overcast. It just was. And I, you know, and I said to my assistant director, I said, we can't shoot today. And he said, what do you mean we can't? We got to shoot. And I said, no, we can't shoot today. We didn't come here for gray skies yeah. and gray water. We could do that in the Catalina Channel. Right. And he's, but, 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 but. And then the production guy got on the phone with me and I said, no, find something else to do. If you want us to work today, find something else to do. We're all prepared, but we're not yeah. cheating. And they let me get away with it. I, I was a little surprised. <laughs> yeah. I thought that they'd be on the phone for another director. <laughs> no, let me get away with it. Yeah. Yeah, Captain Ron was fun. Uh, it didn't test very well, oddly enough, when it went when we went out to preview it. I was disappointed in the test screenings we had. Yeah. And it led to some cutting on the movie in the first act, primarily to get Kurt on screen quicker. Okay. And my agent had an obnoxious habit at the time of renting a limo, inviting me and my wife Christy and a couple of other friends like that. And we were theater hop, go around theater. Uh -huh. It was always fun to do, except with Captain Ron, we went to a big theater in Westwood where it was playing. And when the lights went out, I couldn't see anybody in the theater. There was nobody there. Uh, and I, we went quick, went across the to the valley and went to the ball theaters. Better crowd there, but yeah. not packed. A, a movie really has to be packed on opening night. It wasn't packed. Yeah. And uh, I went, oh, shit. I kind of drank myself to sleep that night. And the next morning, the phone rang, and it usually does. This was with Disney at like 7.30 in the morning. And it's usually somebody in charge of distribution or like that that's on the phone to tell you that the movie bombed. Yeah. <laughs> and my, I said, I don't want to hear it. You answer the phone. You answer the phone. Tell them I'm out for a walk or something. So she answered the phone, and then she cupped the phone. She said, Jeff Gatsburg. Mm -hmm. And my heart soared like an eagle. And I took yeah. the call because Jeffrey never called with bad news. He let somebody else do it. Yeah, so if it's him, that's good news. He said, well, buddy, I got a hit. Got a hit. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, because I feel like that movie, that was not a movie I actually saw at the time. That's what I saw later. But I know that there's a lot of people point to that as kind of one of those movies like Home Alone that they just kind of, yeah. it was part of their childhood staple of films that they grew up yeah. with. Yeah, it was a good, it was a good family movie. That's what we were shooting for. Yeah. I think that's what happened. But then I think you can still find this if you go on, Google and you type in Captain Ron and click images. You get some images from the movie, of course, of Kurt and like that. But then you get all of these guys on their boats drinking with a can of beer. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and, there, and there was boats named Captain Ron in Santa Monica. There was a um, a theater that was named Captain Ron. Huh. So it's like uh, caught on with like that theater. Uh, I'm sorry, a seafood restaurant. It was named. So Captain it's like Cut on with like the yacht, the yachting crowd, like the Jimmy yeah. Buffett crowd. I said, like everybody knew a Captain Ron, you know, anybody knew <laughs> a Captain Ron. And there funny. were some guys in the Navy whose first names were Ron, and they got the nickname of Captain Ron. <laughs> and, and it was, uh, again, that's a movie that surprised me. It didn't surprise me because I always thought it was pretty good for what it was, yeah. but just didn't preview well. Yeah. And I didn't think Disney had a handle on it. 
Yeah. And I told them, because they were getting the usual 20, 18 to 24 year old crowd to preview it. Right. And uh, I kept screaming for a family preview. I want to give me a family preview. It's a family movie, you know, it's not hip enough for 18 to 24 year olds. Yeah. They only gave me one. But when I got there to preview, it was a preview of little kids. <laughs> yeah. For them, the family meant it was either it was either 18 to 24 year olds or the little mermaid crowd. Right. And, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> and we have IRS jokes in that movie and things like that. Right. But kids are great to preview with because all they want to do is please you. So they always rate movies up in the 90%. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. Thanks, Tom Eberhardt, for coming on the show. Be sure to tune in next time. I'm going to have author Gwendolyn Kaiston. She's going to be talking about her upcoming novel, The Haunting of Velkwood. Also, be sure to remember to check out Daniel Brom and his show, Nighttime Logic, on YouTube. His next episode is going to be on February 27th. I will be posting a link to that in this episode's show notes. And please go to whatever streaming platform you're using. Leave five stars. Leave a review. Go to social media. Spread the word. Tell your friends. And I'll be back with you guys again in a couple of weeks. Bye.